Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Uh, so hello, welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by uh, Mr. Jag Nayak, who is a consultant vascular surgeon and lead for the carotid service at Royal Liverpool Hospital. Uh, hi, John. Thank you for inviting me. for this. Oh, uh, thanks for coming along. So today uh, we're going to be talking about the role of carotid endarterectomy and more specifically its role in secondary prevention uh, following TIA or acute ischemic stroke. I thought the best way to do this was really to highlight sort of four common cases that you might be you might discuss in your weekly MDT and kind of talk through some of the issues that arise from these cases. So to begin with, we'll just start with case number one and uh, and talk things through from there. So We've got a 58-year-old male who's referred to the TIA clinic following episode of visual loss. So one week earlier, he had a five-minute episode of visual loss affecting just his right eye, no associated headache, and his event- symptoms eventually settled, and he's not had any recurrence since. Aside from a history of hypertension, for which is on Ramapril, he's otherwise in good medical health, and his examination is entirely normal. A clinical diagnosis is made of TIA, or more specifically, amaurosis fujax, and the patient is started on three weeks of dual antiplatelet therapy with a plan to continue on clopidogrel monotherapy afterwards. And it started on a high dose atorvastatin. ECG shows sinus rhythm. He has a carotid Doppler ultrasound done on the day of his TIA clinic. And this demonstrates evidence of atheromatous plaque at the carotid bifurcation and the right ICA stenosis estimated to be around 60%. And he's referred to the carotid MDT for discussion. So at this stage, the clinical diagnosis of TIA seems secure and the likely cause for his stroke here is likely to be artery to artery embolism from that right ICA. So before we discuss the specifics of this case, can I just ask you about carotid and carterectomy in general? So what is it and what are the main risks of this procedure and practical considerations you have to take into account when considering whether or not to perform surgery? Thank you, John. Yeah, a carotid endarterectomy uh, is a very uh, standard operation for us, index operation, and it's a operation on the carotid artery uh, that is centered around the uh, common carotid bifurcation and extending into the internal carotid artery. Uh, the intention is to remove uh, atherosclerotic plaque uh, with or without any adherent clot that is there, uh, which is the suspected or likely suspected source of emboli for embolization. So we, the endarterectomy goes through the tunica intima um, and removes uh, a disease. We then put a uh, patch, and in this unit, it's a bovine pericardial patch to expand the artery and to mitigate any slight fibrotic narrow that may occur afterwards. So that is what a carotid endarterectomy is. And the majority of us patch the uh, uh, arteriotomy. And, and what are the sort of practical considerations you have to take into account when considering performing it on a patient? So um, we have to make a full assessment. That, so as soon as a referral like this is made, as you know, we are uh, guided by nice guidance. Uh, and, and the aim is to, uh, once this diagnosis is made by a stroke physician, uh, is to operate, uh, if appropriate, on the patient within 14 days of the uh, index event. So the clock is ticking. Uh, however, the patient would be uh, would need to be assessed because there are multiple factors um, regarding fitness for surgery. Uh, we make a close inspection of respiratory issues. If there are any comorbidities that might um, affect things, we'd have an acute infection that might delay operation. Uh, we're quite particular about any cardiac issues. Um, and if there's uh, any arrhythmia, 
uh, or murmurs, then an echo would be asked for as well. Uh, we also look at the movement of the neck because um, anybody with a very stiff neck will impact on uh, surgical positioning and the uh, risk profiling of that particular uh, operation. What's also very important is uh, have there been any previous scars or surgery or radiation to the neck um, and good medical control. So, uh, you know, um, dual uh, or antiplatelets, you said were dual. Uh, statins, you mentioned, but hypertension control is a big issue for us. Mm. We would actually have a standard set where if the blood pressure is a, you know, significantly above 170 on, on a persistent basis, preoperatively, we will cancel the case because uncontrolled hypertension after the operation is, is very risky. Okay. So that's kind of in general. And then back to this case, I, I mentioned there that the uh, carotid Doppler was performed, which estimated uh, the stenosis to be around 60%. Um, so is that a significant stenosis? And what degree of stenosis do you consider significant when you um, considering uh, consider operating? Yes, so, so that would be a significant stenosis. Uh, there, there's been a lot of assessment uh, based on uh, the significant trials of NASA DCST as to what degree of stenosis is important. And uh, the very famous Professor uh, Peter Rothwell from Oxford has done a lot of work uh, in combining these significant trials um, and stating what is considered significant. Uh, and um, the figures are anything above 50% and up to 99% uh, would be a possibly surgically uh, uh, significant lesion. 50 to 70 is considered a moderate lesion and above 70 is considered uh, is considered uh, a severe stenosis. Of course, uh, it's a misnomer to call a, can't have 100% stenosis, but if the vessel is occluded, that would not be operable. So it's 50 to 99%, uh, and this patient would have at 60% a moderate stenosis. Okay, and are there any other features about the stenosis that you look for on the Doppler other than just the, the percentage degree of stenosis? Yes, yeah, so there's been a lot of research looking at plaques and plaque morphology. Um, the uh, critical things are whether the plaque is thought to be ulcerated. Um, now, that seems like a common sense thing, you know, but it's quite difficult to define this um, from a, radiolog a radiological perspective or from a duplex perspective. So a lot of plaques are irregular, but is it ulcerated uh, would be one of the considerations. And that uh, we use uh, in our risk, risk profiling. Uh, um, uh, there's, a, there's an app, again, through the Oxford Stenosis Unit, um, and that affects the risk profiling of the plaque. The other thing is density of the plaque itself. So if it's hypodense, that is associated with being an increased risk or higher uh, risk plaque with increased levels of embolization. So yes, there are specific features. However, it's difficult to, it's not quantifiable easily because degree of density uh, is, is operator based to some degree and it's hard to measure. Okay. And, and would you routinely um, sort of get a second form of imaging to confirm the stenosis for these patients or is Doppler enough? Again, we're guided by NICE guidelines and dual, dual imaging is, um, uh, is recommended um, because uh, duplex, which is the go-to investigations initially, is somewhat operator dependent. Mm. Now, specify what the second modality should be, but uh, we're strongly of the opinion here in Liverpool that it should be a CT angiogram because they're very rapidly attainable now as long as the user needs are available. Uh, there are some units that use uh, double duplex, um, 
to just confirm the degree of stenosis. But I think for quality control, uh, two different modalities, and I think that's what most people use. Excellent. So sounds like in, in summary for case one, he's the kind of patient you want to see and you want to see them as soon as possible. And he's potentially, if everything, everything else was agreeable, he's the kind of patient you'd be considering offering endarterectomy to. Correct. He sounds uh, quite uh, a likely candidate because of his age, uh, the fact that he's a male. The one thing to say is that amaurosis is considered a kind of lower risk symptom uh, as, compared to t as compared to TIA or stroke. Mm. So the risk profiling of amaurosis is a little less based on the uh, historical studies, uh, but he would be a candidate for surgical intervention, yes. Okay, excellent. So moving on to case two. So here we've got a 68-year-old female admitted to the stroke unit having presented with an acute ischemic stroke affecting the left MCA territory. So she did receive thrombolysis acutely, but unfortunately, despite that, the patient still had significant neurological deficit uh, with a right face, arm and leg weakness, as well as an element of expressive dysphasia. So day two after the stroke presentation, the NIS, which is a stroke severity scale, uh, was still 14, indicating a moderate disability. As part of the workup uh, for stroke, a CT angiogram for aortic arch to vertex was organized and a 90% stenosis on the left ICA. So the symptomatic side was seen. However, in view of the large disabling stroke, the patient wasn't referred acutely for consideration of revascularization, but instead was established on best medical therapy and was eventually discharged to rehab. First question there is, in patients who have disabling strokes, what are the added considerations of the timing of carotid endarterectomy? Why, why is it you might be more concerned about performing it in these patients? Well, we actually... If somebody has a disabling stroke, they would not be a candidate for carotid endarterectomy. Um, and in fact, there was an exclusion uh, criteria in, in all original studies. So um, operating on disabled patients um, would not be appropriate because there's, there's nothing, there's already, already disability and you don't know what recovery there's going to be. So I think for, on that basis, um, this patient would not be considered for intervention at this time. If they mm. made a recovery then of course it'll be reassessed okay so the patient's seen in clinic at three months and has made a good recovery now has only mild dysphagia um, with just some loss of dexterity in the right upper limb and she's referred they're referred back to clinic at this stage uh, to the carotid MDT for consideration of intervention so we're now three months since the index event and the patient's been medically optimized and has not had any further strokes. What do we know about the effect of timing on this intervention in terms of the effectiveness of this procedure? So, so timing is actually critical. Um, and the, the highest risk after any event um, is actually in the first 48 hours, but extended up to the first two weeks. Um, and the risk of an unstable plaque is very early on. Once it's been medically optimized, that risk does diminish um, quite dramatically. However, technically on the other side is that a lesion is considered symptomatic technically till for six months. So up to six months, uh, and th this is because uh, the definition of an asymptomatic carotid, it would be somebody with no events in the preceding six months. Mm. So up to six months, technically symptomatic. However, that's all the, the, the risk is front loaded from the trials that have been done. Um, so the patient has now recovered, but they're now three months in the recovery. So their risk profiling would be 
much diminished. Um, and the likelihood is that at, at this point, they'd be, we start to think of them as, as asymptomatic and, uh, or, or rather very low risk at this point of further events if they've been stabilized in medical treatment. Okay. And is there any difference between males and females with regards to, to that risk profiling? Yes, there is. Uh, I, th I think the, the figures um, from the original trials, uh, two thirds of the patients were male and one third were female. And in the female group, uh, in the female group, it was uh, found that the risk that there was benefit for, for a shorter period of, of about two weeks or so. Um, and there's some evidence that beyond two weeks, even for symptomatic patients, um, the, the female population does not benefit. Mm. That's a very tight timeline uh, for this. And it's partly because um, the, the risks of surgery are somewhat higher uh, in the female population as well. So I think with her being female, especially and it being three months, uh, she would not be a candidate for intervention, even, though, even with a good uh, recovery and she'd be for best medical treatment. Okay, and any ideas as to why those differences exist between males and females? Do we, do we know that? Well, it's been looked at, uh, I think a lot of it is generally, you know, size for size, the blood vessels, I think, are smaller. Um, I think that's the general feeling uh, on it. Uh, and perhaps uh, that, that's the general feeling. There isn't a specific issue, but uh, looking at the general numbers, uh, for in most aspects of complex small vessel vascular reconstructions, uh, the female population does worse. Oh, I see. Not not just in carotids, then. That, that's lower limbs as well. I, I think it's more uh, the, the outcomes are not as not as good in, in, in ladies as in men. Okay, so it sounds like really one of the key aspects of the MDT is risk profiling these patients and looking at the risks of intervening versus, you know, not intervening. Um, and are there any other things that we've not discussed there that are important in terms of weighing up risk benefits for this procedure? Again, general things, uh, the general condition uh, of the patient uh, and comorbidities are very important. We, we're seeing an increasingly uh, comorbid population and we don't have an upper age limit for carotid endarterectomy either. And there's quite a lot of evidence that the older the patient is, sorry, the older the patient is, the more benefit they gain from an appropriate endarterectomy. Hmm. But of course, older patients accumulate and collect a lot of comorbidities. Um, which have implications for surgical intervention. So we always make a thorough assessment. Now, because of time issues, we, it's often a surgical assessment and then a secondary anesthetic assessment on the day of surgery. Mm. However, if there are any doubts beforehand, we would always garner a formal opinion from our anesthetic colleagues about the risks of a general anesthetic and whether a local anesthetic procedure might be appropriate. We can tackle it either way. Yeah. Uh, in this unit here, we prefer general anesthetic, um, but uh, an assessment of cardiorespiratory issues uh, would be important because um, uh, the complications are both specific to endarterectomy and generally related to a general anesthetic. Okay, excellent. So um, moving on to the next case. So case three, um, it's slightly different clinical scenario here. So for a 72-year-old male referred from the emergency department, uh, referred from the emergency department with suspected TIA, he reports recurrent dizzy spells suggestive of vertigo. And on further history, he tells you he gets these dizzy spells when he turns over in bed. They're usually quite transient and then eventually they subside. And um, so a clinical diagnosis of BPPV is made and the patient's managed accordingly. 
However, whilst in A&E, the junior doctor requested for carotid Dopplers to be done. uh, And these have demonstrated a 50% stenosis of the right ICA and 80% stenosis of the left ICA. So in this scenario, the patient's not had a stroke, they've not had a TIA, but they've found to have these stenoses. So is there any role for endarterectomy in asymptomatic individuals? Uh, So... There, there are trials looking at this. So there are the asymptomatic carotid trials, both here uh, and in the US. Um, and there, there is a role for asymptomatic surgery in a very select group of individuals. Uh, we discourage juniors listening to the neck and listening for breweries because you know, finding a general stenosis isn't really helpful. Um, but the feeling is that in sub 75 year old, uh, predominantly male individuals, there is a small benefit for asymptomatic surgery if the surgeon's stroke rate is low, mm. i.e. much less than 3%, uh, then there, there may be a benefit. Now, the, the benefit is accrued at about 1% advantage per year, so it's very small indeed. Uh, and there's still a 3%, 2 to 3% rate, obviously, of the operation causing a problem. So, so there are benefits for a small group. Now, this gentleman is, uh, you know, in, in the kind of 70s. So it's certainly worth an assessment, but I'd be probably guiding them towards best medical treatment. Uh, in the kind of late 60s, um, and possibly kind of a very fit 70-year-old gentleman with a, with a good life expectancy of five or more years, it's not an unreasonable uh, position to take to, to, to discuss the operation with them and see what their feelings are. But, but the, the impression in, in this unit is that we, we tend to have, to have a low rate of treatment for asymptomatic uh, patients because uh, we have a very large work of symptomatic patients that also impacts things. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, the final case we'll discuss today. So this is a 67 year old referred to clinic following a transient episode of sensory motor weakness affecting right face, arm and leg. Uh, episode lasted 10 minutes now uh, and pretty resolved. Uh, so clinical diagnosis of TIA. Now of relevance, this patient's medical history significant for previous oropharyngeal cancer diagnosed nine years earlier. And as treatment for this, he had a radical neck dissection as well as post-operative radiotherapy to that left side of the neck. So the symptomatic side, the symptomatic carotid. So uh, CTA demonstrates a 90% stenosis in the left ICA around the bifurcation. And that's also confirmed on Doppler. So he seems like clinically it's a TIA. Um, it seems like a good, uh, you know, good stenosis for intervention. But do you think hearing this, is there anything as a vascular surgeon that makes you a bit more concerned? Maybe oh, a bit right. in there, yeah. That's a very leading question, John. Uh, yes, he obviously is a very, he's a young patient in his 60s with an appropriate stenosis, uh, but he's had significant both surgical and, and radiotherapy intervention, which makes the neck a, host, a hostile neck from a surgical perspective. Um, and this would be a, um, a, you know, a classic example to, for us to discuss with our you know, neural radiology colleagues um, uh, as well, because he would benefit, but with the right type of uh, intervention. And, and this would be one way we would, we would consider uh, referring for a stent, carotid stent. Okay. Are there any other times or any other indications where you might consider stenting over surgery other than either previous neck surgery or radiotherapy? 
Yes, I mean, there, there have been several trials uh, of carotid stenting uh, versus carotid arterectomy, you know, such as uh, Crest. Um, and if, if the patient has uh, significant cardiac or pulmonary issues, uh, or there's a risk of anesthesia, that is one consideration for either stenting or possibly general, general, a local anesthetic. Um, and but, but the primary issues really are a hostile, a hostile mm. neck. Um, that, that's what uh, pushes one to consider stenting. In the general population of stenting versus uh, surgery, uh, the stenting group had a higher upfront risk of um, cerebral events. <clears throat> so on MRI findings, uh, there was almost a doubling of the rate of uh, uh, embolic phenomena with, with stenting uh, mm. in certain groups. Uh, particularly in the over 70s, uh, more equivalent in the in the under 70-year-old uh, age group. Uh, but the general feeling now is the technology is not quite good enough to match the the historically good results of orthodontectomy. Um, okay. And what about in terms of patients who've had previous endarterectomies and kind of redo operations? Is that something that you you you, you would perform, or is that also a little bit? Do you have to be a bit cautious. So uh, we do, um, again, uh, carotid lesions can re nose as well. In fact, the, the figures are that, um, uh, I think that there have been studies in Italy that have looked at uh, routine scanning post-optically, which is not the practice in the UK here, but the rate is 15 to 20% of some degree of re mm. of the area, and, and usually not clinically symptomatic. But after four to five years, those areas can reaccumulate atherosclerotic lesions as well. So, so we do see people who, you know, who have long life expectancies coming back, uh, having had carotid uh, surgery. Um, our, our primary, uh, we, we've been kind of equipoised about whether to offer redo surgery versus stenting. So, mm. so, so we veer towards, a little towards redo surgery if it's been a primary uncomplicated neck. Mm. Uh, but any other hostile features or, or patient um, factors, um, and we would consider... Uh, a stenting procedure, you know, previous, you know, autopharyngeal cancers that have been dealt with. So there are, there are a multitude yeah. of potential small or, or, or issues that will push you to consider uh, stenting. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks. That's the, uh, all four cases uh, discussed. And uh, I think we, we covered quite a lot of, uh, of different clinical scenarios that you encounter uh, there. So thanks, thanks very much for your time, Jag, and uh, yeah, uh, thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks very much, John. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.